0: Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation.
1: Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for June 25th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we talk about discovery farms in Arkansas and dive into the troubles facing the dairy industry. We also talk about China's troubling reaction to COVID-19 infections at a Springdale poultry plant and learn about a deadly new virus strain in wild rabbits. First, Greg Patterson connects with Dairy Farmer and Pollution Control and Ecology Commissioner Delia Hawk and University of Arkansas Professor and Water Quality Specialist Mike Daniels for a discussion of Discovery Farms. Discovery Farms are a 10-year on-farm research monitoring program that provides scientific data to identify and help farmers choose best management practices to protect the environment.
2: This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas iCast, we have two guests. We've got Dr. Mike Daniels, he is a water resources prof- professor and specialist for the University of Arkansas's Department of Agriculture System. And we've got Delia Hawk, And Delia is a former executive director for the Illinois River Watershed Partnership up in northwest Arkansas. She currently is a commissioner on Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality's Pollution Control, and Ecology Commission, and she and her husband, Bill, run a dairy farm, and it's a Discovery Farms dairy farm up in northwest Arkansas. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, you, Greg. Uh, Mike, Discovery Farms, give us a general overview of what Discovery Farms are and how they're helping in maintaining and improving water quality.
3: Well, the Discovery Farm Program is one that's aimed at helping agricultural producers document their uh, impact, both positive and negative, on on water resources. Uh, our Discovery Farms is a unique program; it's built on partnerships. But at the center of these partnerships is is the fact that that several people from universities, agencies, are all working with the farmer on their farm uh, to address issues that may be specific to that farm and so uh, discovery farms are private working farms much like the hawk dairy is a private working farm uh, that have graciously allowed us to come in and set up some monitoring equipment and do some sampling uh, and to test how well their conservation practices are working so that we have some data to, to identify where agriculture sits in a watershed issue uh it's so easy to identify agriculture as a issue it's much harder to show or demonstrate whether it is or not and that's that's what we're trying to do is work with farmers to be proactive on these issues
2: yeah and and what you're referring to there is a lot of times fingers get pointed at different uh whether it's a a smokestack industry or a Uh, point source pipe issue or something like that or agriculture and saying oh you know what they do on their particular area uh poorly affects water quality or whatever it happens to be and in a discovery farm situation you get absolutely you know the real hard data to be able to look at where the successes are and where the points are where improvement can be done correct That is correct. I mean, a lot of the work to try to
3: identify what the issues are in a watershed is done by modeling, much like uh, climate modeling or weather weather modeling. We just don't have good ways. It takes an awful lot of money to try to do a comprehensive job of monitoring every single source in a watershed. Uh, But in the fact of agriculture, we felt like we needed real data to help our farmers first know where they're at, uh, are they a significant part of the problem or are they not? And if they're, if they are, then we would work with them to try to find solutions that work and document that. Uh, we would also help them of, of their choosing that, what practices do they think they can implement on their farm, uh, that will work. And, and one of the big parts of this is not only just the data, but I think sometimes, uh, people that are in, uh, positions with agencies that want to help address this problem, uh, a lot of times they're not including farmers in the solution process and this 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 program includes farmers in the solution process as far as determining what can and can't be done and what might be effective on their particular farm and i think that's so important because farmers know their farm better than anybody else and they know their capabilities and they have tremendous experience in the field why would we not want to use that in coming up with solutions we really strongly feel Farmers may very well come up with the strongest and best solutions uh, to these issues, as long as we can supply them data to help them document where they're at and where they're going.
2: Delia, you and your husband, Bill, have been operating a, a dairy farm for, for decades up there north northwest Arkansas.
0: What made
2: y'all want to get involved in the Discovery Farms program?
4: Well, I I think a lot of it was based on the trust that um, Bill and I have um, had in Mike Daniels, Dr. Daniels, and others in the Discovery Farm Program. I know that Bill uh, traveled with them up to uh, the University of Wisconsin to visit um, another program, I believe it was in in that state, and this was modeled after that. To where they, the goal was really to work with farmers to and. Uh, you know, implement conservation practices that are best management practices, and like Dr. Daniels said, it really is based on what's happening the real life data that's happening on a farm, so we wanted to be part of the solutions and and protecting water quality and land and and still be able to see land be productive and animals that can be productive from that land so uh We are part of the water quality testing runoff. We do rotational grazing and some of the best management practices that they um, recommend are implemented on the farm so they can get, you know, real data to use for um, other farmers and other recommendations.
2: Yeah. How long have you and Bill been involved in the program, Delia?
4: Well, I believe it's over five years now. Um, It's, all goes pretty fast, so I'm not sure exactly what year we started. Come to think of it, but uh, I know that uh, even later this month, what, next on the 30th of June, we have a group of about 20 to 25 people coming to visit the farm and do a tour. And th- those include, as Mike um, doc- Dr. Daniels indicated, agency people, uh, some folks from out of state as well, just to see what's going on on the farm and how it's working and. Um we also have n r c s that we work with uh, a number of their programs, and you know bill has always been very much one that uh we don't want to stick our head in the sand and don't um realize if we've got an issue or problem we'd like to see what's going on and and be able to address it and you know thankfully, so many of the practices that are recommended have a great impact on uh again making conservation possible but also increasing production and in our case you can see a very real correlation in terms of even actual increases in milk production from the dairy cattle
2: that's got to be impressive to you
4: it is it's it's encouraging that's for sure because you're always trying to be more productive with the uh you know the tools and the resources that you have and to make them go as far as possible and It's great to see that um, at the end of the day at the tank, it has a little more milk in it.
2: (laughs) Now, Dr. (laughs) Daniels, any good research scientist will tell you um, that you need a minimum of five years of data before you start even kind of extrapolating, you know, what the pros and the cons are. So you've got the hawks have been involved kind of from the beginning. You've got five years worth of data. How many farms are, are involved in Discovery Farms right now in Arkansas, and are you adding more, or and what kind of farms are you studying on? Yes,
3: yeah, so what when we first decided we were going to do the Discovery Farm program, and by the way, I just wanted to add to what uh, Delia said. Uh, Bill Hawk was on the uh, uh, Farm Bureau Environmental Issues Committee when we started – when we approached Farm Bureau about investigating this program further in Wisconsin. So he actually traveled to Wisconsin and toured some of the discovery farms. And, uh, he was one of our biggest cheerleaders when we got back as, Hey, we got to do this program. Uh, but what we tried to do, Greg, was select some of the the dominant agricultural systems in the state. And we didn't prioritize dairy as highly to start with. We started with uh, some of the row crops and with poultry, obviously, with our right. first four farms, now we have grown to 12, and so we were able to add, and uh, with help from the Walton Family Foundation on funding, we were able to add the doc, the Hawk Dairy Farm, and it's our only dairy farm in the in the program. But we're up to 12, and uh, we're probably going to have one that we retire out, and we're, we're adding two more. NRCS has funded us to study uh, poultry litter use on row crops in the Discovery Farm setting. Now, we have not selected the farm. We just got funded for that grant. But it's going to be in northeast Arkansas where uh, two new poultry companies have come in and established uh, 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 poultry production near row crop farms. So it's not so much that the the existing poultry industry is expanding to northeast Arkansas. It's new poultry companies are coming in and basing themselves out of Pocahontas and and Newport and uh, Batesville uh much closer to row crop areas and so we feel like we need to have some experience and understanding the second one is is that one of the major concerns we have in our state from a natural resource standpoint is that even though we're a small state we're ranked number three in the nation in terms of groundwater withdrawal for irrigation and right now uh the united states geological survey and others project that we just can't sustain the amount of groundwater withdrawal for irrigation and be able to keep that aquifer at half of a saturated thickness or or the amount that you need to make sure that aquifer is protected from subsidence and other things. And so uh, we're working with Anheuser-Busch and others, uh, but Anheuser-Busch came to us and wanted to start a, uh, a, a discovery farm for sustainable water use and rice production. And so we've just established a new discovery farm in northeastern Arkansas uh, that's going to be looking at different water management regimes in rice to see if we can, uh, for example, there's a lot of interest in row rice right now or growing rice on furrows and not flooding it, but just keeping the soil near saturation through furrow irrigation. And so we're comparing that to some of the other traditional uh, flooding, uh, uh, another technique called multiple inlet, and then another technique that's really good at reducing methane uh, called Alternative Wetting and Drying. And we just want to look at the water use and the water quality and some of the soil aspects of that. So those are two new farms that are coming on uh,
2: this year.
0: and
2: so Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. And, and I would assume that the Anheuser-Busch tie and rice being the um, uh, farm has to do with the fact that's that's what they use. That's the grain they predominantly use in their brewing of beer, correct?
3: That is correct. Uh, they're one of the largest uh, uh, direct customers of our rice in Arkansas, and they have several uh, rice growers that grow under contract in Arkansas for them. And Heiser busch has made a, 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 a an industry-wide or a corporate-wide goals on sustainability, including reducing water use at their own brewery plants. But now they're trying to extend that out to people who supply them with raw product to help them become more sustainable. And so they're investing in programs like Discovery Farms to help them document and find
2: answers to these questions. And then, of course, you mentioned, because funding is, is always the driving factor when it comes to scientific uh, research, you've got the Walton Family Foundation that you mentioned. Uh, you've got Anheuser-Busch. Then you also mentioned the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and they've got some programs that are involved as well, and I'll ask you about them in a minute. Um, but I wanted to touch base with Delia again, and and just just say how have you how have you and Bill been um, oh, uh, viewed by other farmers in regards to your discovery farm work? Because a lot of times farmers may not want to have, you know, people crawling around testing their water or testing anything else, but but you all have really been able to step out front and present this as a, a good program. Have you been able to convince some other farmers about that?
4: Yes, I think that's a really good point. You know, farmers tend to trust other farmers in what they're saying, you know, that they're not exaggerating the benefits or they're not... Um, trying to get you to sign up for something that, you know, might not be beneficial for them, but you're really just looking out for their good and telling them here, this is what worked for us. And, you know, these are the results. And so that trust factor is really between farmers to other farmers is really a key. And I think it goes back again to, you know, with the extension agents that, that we have known and worked with, um, those are uh, relationships that we really felt like, hey, these guys really are trying to help us be more productive farmers. They really are trying to help us be better stewards of the land. They aren't trying to put the farmer out of business or show you know detrimental effects of what's happening. They truly have want the best uh, for farmers. So I think that is the key to making this program work was that the farmers had to have that trust that the this program was really for the good of farmers and farming as a whole um that the data was going to be used only in the ways that would be um you know that they had mentioned they were going to be used for there wasn't any ulterior motives or anything else like that we do rotational grazing with over 240 acres 12 different um, pastures that we rotate and there's different Grasses that are grown, they measure the water quality coming off of different ones and different seasons or rainy seasons of the year. Uh, we work with the NRCS, as uh, Dr. Daniels said. It's kind of a, a team effort, you know, with uh, all the different aspects of conservation uh, efforts. And, you know, I think that's good. It's been a wonderful life for us in Arkansas it's a wonderful state. We would love to see more young farmers be able to stay in farming and raise their families there, not only for, you know, the the products that they produce are quality, high quality products um, that preserve our land and our natural resources, but it's just the quality of life that um, it's just been wonderful for us, and I just highly recommend it. I would love to see more young people get into it, but it's kind of, one of those professions these days where the um, investment is very high and, and there is some backlash from, you know, some environmental groups toward uh, farmers. And a lot of that is not um, based on sound science. It's really um, unfortunate. But that's what these programs can help show, how farmers are being good stewards and how they're being better uh, producers by implementing these conservation practices
2: and you you yourself Delia, have been involved heavily in you know promoting sound science as a decision maker having the facts in regards to you know your former position as the executive director with the illinois river watershed partnership that is a was a, a a deal where the Illinois river of course crosses a state border and goes into Oklahoma. And there were issues that y'all were dealing with the environmental protection agency on. And then as well, um, you talk about lifestyle and getting younger farmers in and, and you guys were the state farm family of the year. That's, that's how I first met you. And and it truly is a lifestyle that is, is admirable and one that is of honorable work for sure. So so tell, tell us a little bit about the uh, Illinois River watershed and, and what you were dealing with there.
4: Well, it, this is a unique watershed in that it's in the northwest part of the state. We have um, our major cities in the corridor from Bentonville, Rogers, Springdale, and Fayetteville, and all of those uh, creeks and streams flow into the Illinois River. We um, All of those major cities get their drinking water from uh, Beaver watershed or Beaver Lake, and it then flows into through household usage and the city usage into the Illinois River watershed. So we had large NPDES permits, uh, wastewater treatment permits, drinking water coming into our watershed. But we also have, and um, it is an agricultural watershed. So the partnership, and what I would really love for people to understand is that. This organization started before I joined them, uh, but I was so impressed with how they were very intentional about wanting this to be a true partnership between cities, counties, business, conservation groups, uh, agriculture, education, you know, all the different groups that were pledging to work together. We weren't trying to work against each other. We were saying, what is the 80%? 90% 90% of things that we can all agree on and start putting into practice to keep and protect our watershed. And let's just focus on what we can all agree on and get that work done. Um, because we all live here, we all want it to uh, be a good, uh, healthy watershed for both agriculture as well as um, the cities and the counties and so on. So. That partnership has done a lot of work to educate people from children to adults and and landowners as well as city uh, residents and city councils and different things on what are some good practices for watershed uh, protection. So I think it was a really timely uh, group that came together. They started back in 2006. So almost 15 years now of watershed protection, that's made a huge impact and improvement in this watershed. And it's a beautiful part of the state and a lot of conservation that's, you know, on the ground, put those resources on the ground where they belong. So that was an exciting uh, partnership to be a part of. And uh, I learned a lot, but we also like to follow um, those best management practices that science comes up with. And I uh, really appreciate Dr. Daniels and the Discovery Farm Program that's also providing that key data that, you know, can help watersheds both here and around our states um, to know what are some of the best management practices.
2: Now, Dr. Daniels, uh, uh, Delia makes a really good point about how partnerships are the real engine that makes any change work. And and talk about um, one of your main partnerships that you guys work with from a research standpoint, which is the uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service uh, part of USDA.
3: Yes. Uh, you know, one of the cornerstones of our program is partnerships, and we knew we needed a broad-based set of partners to make this program go or, or, or to reach the vision that we had for it, and at the time that we started discovery farms USDA and Natural Resources Conservation Service had started a program that was called the landscape initiative because it was focused funding was focused on the Mississippi River uh watershed or basin and really to address excess nutrients in the Gulf of Mexico and models had been saying that uh you know the nutrients were coming from agriculture primarily the 13 states right along the Mississippi River um, and so they adopted a, 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 some activities called Conservation Activity 201 and 202. And these were to set up edge of field monitoring sites to evaluate uh, edge of field mo- uh, our, our conservation practices. And this was cost sharing eligible to the farmer. And we've taken advantage of that in our state and several of our discovery farms get funding it goes to the farmer and we provide the service of monitoring so they turn around and, and reimburse us for our costs associated with edge of field monitoring which is a very costly process but i think it's been well worth it uh, but they have been tremendous and so in selected watersheds around the state or mrbi project areas you can get this this uh conservation activity 201 and 202. i think the other place is they provided a lot of technical assistance Uh, For us, for example, they came out and did a very detailed uh, inventory and survey of the Hawk Dairy Farm uh, so that we could see uh, the micro relief and things like that and and that sort of thing. And so they provide a lot of technical assistance, but a lot of financial assistance, too. We also have been successful in getting grants. Uh, I think we've up to 22 different funding sources now for Discovery Farms. But primarily uh the program is the partnership that we have is 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 the group of partners uh that are there with a common goal of serving the producers and so we have a uh stakeholder committee made up of uh people from agricultural organizations organizations for example, we have somebody from the Arkansas soybean association um we have somebody from farm bureau and then we have a technical advisory committee. And these are your your people from NRCS and others that support us through attending our meetings and giving us technical suggestions and advice. And we usually meet those – those two groups usually
2: meet at the same time uh, to bounce ideas off each other. Delia, you had mentioned about rotational grazing as one of the things you were doing on your farm. Is there anything else from the Discovery Farm research that was done that you guys have – Uh, instituted on your dairy farm?
4: So one of the other practices that we implemented have been riparian buffer zones, planting trees along areas where um, there might be intermittent or ephemeral streams. That land area is very important to um, making sure uh, that you're protecting a, uh, a stream. And we've work with NRCS to plant a a number of trees that they recommend as best use in those riparian areas. And and that has really been very helpful. We also have waterers. Uh, Each field has a a, a waterer for for the cows to get their water from so they're not drinking from a creek or a stream. That actually has helped increase uh, dairy production. And um, we do have trees that the cows can get under for shade when it's, you know, warm outside and so on. So all of those things have helped tremendously as well.
2: Mike, how about around the state uh, in some of your other farms, uh, what are some of the practices that the research is showing that farmers are now implementing, whether it's row crop or poultry or, or beef cattle, whatever it may be?
3: Uh, yeah, I think there's a, a, a lot of different conservation practices, and again, what we try to do are work on practices that NRCS can provide financial assistance for. But cover crops on row crops has become a, a, a an issue. I mean, a, a practice that farmers are interested in. Uh, they, they 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 see that there is is some benefit in improving infiltration, uh, which reduces runoff, which it reduces the, the transportability of nutrients and sediment to leave a farm. Uh, we're looking at grass waterways, taking some pastures out of uh, grazing, and and using that as a grass waterway. Uh, we're doing that on a poultry farm, and, and really one very common sense and 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 you know low technology type approach that we've also looked at on one of our poultry farms is that we put in cement pads at the end of houses where they typically clean out. And because right. you it, you cannot clean out these poultry houses with backhoes and skids and and, and things and, and not have some spillage. And, and what we found the concrete pads, and we have the data to show it, are very effective. And once you load uh, the litter truck and pull out, y- y- you've got that, that litter captured on the concrete. You can clean it up very easily. And so we're not building up soil phosphorus right around the houses with that uh, that approach and that's trying to use some of the uh low impact development uh you know we we're interested in looking at how we you know how we build uh poultry houses and and what we do and and maybe even using some stormwater management techniques uh on those farms if it's a new farm to help control runoff from around the houses uh, we're also looking at uh, conservation tillage. But another area that we're looking at is really trying to become more efficient with our irrigation and using pipe planning and soil moisture sensors to, to trigger irrigation and surge valves to alternate water between one part of the field and the other so that we get more water soaking in and less running off. So water management has become a, a, a big issue, too. And then really looking at practices that improve soil health. We think if we can improve soil health, uh, then we can retain more nutrients and sediment on site and, and lose them. But let me say this. We've been doing this for, for close to 10 years now. And overall, we find that less than 5% of the nutrients that we're putting on as fertilizer is being lost in runoff. And, and that's, uh, uh, in our mind, that's a pretty low number relative to what we're applying. It means we're doing a good
2: job of managing the nutrients that we
3: put out there. and So, so, bas-
2: so basically <clears throat> what you're saying is the nutrients that are being put out there, whether they are regular fertilizer or uh, recycled fertilizer, let's say, from litter or some other source, are being absorbed and used by the, the target plant.
3: That's exactly right. You know, we have a very strong soil test program, and I think our farmers are doing a great job of matching fertilizers to their plant needs so that we're not just putting out a lot of extra fertilizer available as a source to be transported via runoff. And so, uh, and, I, and I think in the row crop areas, we're very fortunate that we have long uh, rows. Sometimes these rows are a half mile long, very flat. And we just don't build up much energy to pick up and carry nutrients and sediment uh, from those sites, as compared to other parts of the country. We still so, lose sediment, and we could do a better job on sediment, and we will. But cover crops is helping that also by keeping the ground covered most of the year. I think on, on the on the beef cattle farms, the rotational grazing that, but also extending out our our grazing period so that we have. uh You know, grazing from, you know, we like to count 300 days of grazing, which is most of the year. It's sometimes hard to achieve, but uh, it is keeping the ground covered and a crop, you know, growing uh, during that time. We are starting to look at using uh, cover crops even on pastures so that we can extend that grazing period.
2: Delia, tell us um, from your perspective, you've worked with a a watershed group, a partnership. Um, You've worked on the dairy farm that you and Bill run and seen what's going on. You also are now tied in with uh, the Department of Environmental Quality on their pollution control and ecology commission that listens to a variety of things that come in from from, – the business side of agriculture, as well as uh, from those uh, groups that are trying to protect the environment and conservation. What do you see in the future that helps bring together people more to support what's going on with agriculture and how does agriculture convince folks out there that they are doing the best they can in, uh, and are actually protecting the environment?
4: Well, that's a really great question, and I certainly would love to be a part of, you know, having that conversation continue where um, the pendulum oftentimes tends to swing way over to one side and then it'll sway way back over to the other side where we're, we're, you know, we're trying to... Um, we're pitching parties against each other rather than working together. And I think for most people that they like to eat, they like to eat quality (laughs) products and protein. They like, um, you know, nutritious vegetables and and nutritious milk and milk products and so on. So having a healthy um, agricultural community in our country is a, is a real blessing for us. I think we've seen that in this, you know, current COVID season where, you know, a a food supply is very important to making, you know, to public safety and health and safety, but uh, how can we work together? It's not either or. It's not environmental protection or agricultural production. It's working together to have both of those things. So I, I believe the American farmer really does a good job and wants to do a good job, of uh, being a good steward of their land and their animals and their product. What Dr. Daniels just talked about is some really exciting new ways of farming that will help agricultural producers not only um, be better environmental stewards but make a better product but also do it in a way that's profitably sustainable um, as well as environmentally sustainable. And I I would really love to see us be able to have that uh, future food source continue here in our country where we never become dependent on having to import our food production and be dependent on, you know, other places to produce our food. We don't know that they're doing it in environmentally sustainable ways. We don't know if they're doing it in, in healthy ways even, you know, in terms of, what they're using to make their food production. So I do appreciate the um, partnership approach to all these things from a federal, local, state um, initiatives. But uh, the the farmer is so important in this process. And farmers can do a much better job than um, even an industrial-type run production. And they can... I just would love to see us be able to support the farmers in being both financially um sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable and making a really fine product. We have such wonderful land resources here in our state. We have such wonderful water resources. Uh Dr. Daniels talked about the um, um I'm sorry the the uh, aquifers but we also have 48 inches of rain a year. How could we, you know, use use that we, more sustainably? We've had,
2: we've had 48 inches of rain this spring, I think. Already, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I
4: I love the, the the ideas that they're doing that you know it takes less water or or can be more manageable in terms of you know irrigation and things like that. So, all of those new techniques are really exciting.
3: Yeah, and Greg, I'd like to add on this partnerships and and getting people to work together. I think one of the things that we sometimes focus on on the Discovery Farm is collecting the data, but I think the other aspect is it provides a tremendous educational platform to do a couple of things. First, farmer-to-farmer education that we've touched on, we promote that through our program. We have a yep. lot of field days and tours on our farms, and we may speak at it, but the star of the show is usually the farmer, and the right. other farmers farmers want to hear from them. The second thing is... Is it's a great way and a great platform to give farmers a chance to talk about what they love on their own property and and how much they invest in stewardship and how sincerely that message comes across to policymakers, the general public, uh, people that may not be on a farm every day or may have not ever been on a farm, but are concerned about the the water quality issues. And I just think it's something magical happens when you get people out on a farm that's not been out there, and they start to see the constraints as well as the positive things that farmers are doing. And so we never want to, you know, we we didn't necessarily, as scientists, think about that aspect of this program. But I tell you, it's become a very powerful platform for for doing those things, education and and, and letting the farmer on their own, in their own comfort zone, tell their story to people that might miss, might have misunderstood them
2: or their story. You know that's a, that's a real good point, and and Delia, I'm going to give you an opportunity to brag on the fact that you have the University of Arkansas Department of Agriculture. You've got the Extension Service, and how important is that to agriculture in Arkansas?
4: Well, it's very important, and we're we're. Um... You know that's a huge resource for local farmers and a huge investment in our state's future. Um, that we could see our state still being able to be a productive uh, agricultural state. Um, I was just last week at a um, the Arkansas Young Cattlemen's Association had a leadership tour of uh, a local cattle farm up here in northwest Arkansas and it's a young farmer and his family that had this cattle operation and they were doing a farm tour as as uh, Dr. Daniels described but it was just really neat to see uh, a lot of young people from different parts of the state um, meeting each other working together learning you know what works in different areas and parts of the state Um, but having these associations as he pointed out work with both the university of arkansas and the extension service our um, extension agent uh, johnny gonzalez from benton county came had lunch you know met the young farmers and things like that they've always been available to work with the local farmers and i think that's a real asset our county agents here have has been very um you know just very available and helpful in terms of how to solve issues that might come up or finding out information that can be shared. Um, So that's always been a great resource. We really appreciate it.
2: Mike, some uh, final thoughts from you in regards to the future of the Discovery Farms program and also a shout-out to your partner, Dr. Andrew Sharpley, who helps you with Discovery Farms as well.
3: Yeah, Andrew has just been a tre- tremendous colleague and tremendous co-leader of this program. Uh, he's he's recognized worldwide for his innovative research in phosphorus and water quality. Uh, so we're just so lucky to have him here in Arkansas. But he he really uh, enjoys working with farmers and, and trying to help farmers address these issues, whether they're just purely emotional or if there is a science issue involved in it but uh he's been very good to work with i I think the success of the program uh, quite honestly has been the participation of our farmers and their willingness to to let people come on their farm and share their story and we can back that up with data we that's a very powerful combination Uh, but if we were just standing up talking as representatives of the university i don't think we'd have much success it's when our farmers uh, become full participants and partners in this process that it's become very successful. And and I think the the people recognize the need and the value of this program. And, you know, we we don't have any dedicated money. We go out, Andrew and I go out, and we write a lot of grants. But we also have a lot of partners. Uh, Farm Bureau, for one, has donated um, and, and, and gifted money to us for the program. And we're so thankful for their support. Uh, we have a lot of people that that have made this a success, but none none as much as the individual discovery farmers that have welcomed this on their farm and uh, and, and then the nice things they say about the program. Uh, but as long as we can continue to get funding, we're going to continue to do these programs, and we're seeing more and more interest of groups coming in and and wanting to work on a very particular issue like groundwater availability and things that. Uh, but they recognize the importance of of having the farmer involved in the solution process and the type of data collection that we're doing on Discovery Farms. It's been truly a humbling experience uh, just by the fact that so many partners and people have gotten behind this program uh, and see the merit to it and the benefit of it. and it just, It's just very humbling to Andrew and
2: I. Well, he's uh, Dr. Mike Daniels a water resource specialist and professor for the University of Arkansas's Division of Agriculture System. Uh, Delia Hock has been our other guest today. She is currently a commissioner on the Pollution Control and Ecology Commission with the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality. And more importantly, she and her husband, Bill, are dairy farmers. And you're two of my favorite people in the, in the ag world, and I've thoroughly enjoyed you being guests today. Thank you so much.
1: Next, Ken Moore talks to Bruce Tincleave, Commodity and Regulatory Affairs Director and Dairy Division Coordinator for Arkansas Farm Bureau, about the importance of the Dairy Margin Coverage Insurance Program, and gets his reaction to news of China suspending poultry product imports from a Springdale Tyson plant after an outbreak of COVID-19 among workers there.
0: I'm Ken Moore, and I'm speaking now with uh, Bruce Pincleve. Bruce is Director of Commodity Activities and Regulatory Affairs for the Arkansas Farm Bureau, and in that role, he uh, works very closely and and coordinates our dairy and poultry division programs and uh, works with our dairy and poultry farmers. Uh, And, Bruce, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, As we continue to deal with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's impacting commodities all across the board within agriculture, and dairy is not an exception. And I uh, learned this week that uh, uh, the Department of Agriculture's Farm Service Agency has announced that dairy margin coverage, the safety net sign-up for this year, will begin in October. So we're several months away from that uh, beginning, on October twelfth, and it continues through December eleventh. But why is this dairy margin coverage safety net program so important for our dairy producers right now?
5: Thank you, Mr. Moore. Uh, yeah, this dairy margin um, uh, protection coverage program. Uh, you know, when we started, probably when the sign up was for last year, and sign up for this year starts on October the twelfth. But last year's sign up, which started in October as well, and went to the end of the year. You know, the future prices showed that uh, we were going to be okay for this year. It was going to be a uh, nineteen, dollars milk for the year. And so what we found was we did still have some people sign up for the protection program, but uh, some didn't because they, they it's like an insurance program. So, you know, you don't want your house to burn down, but you have it just in case. But some chose not to. Uh, they gambled and, and chose not to uh, cover that milk, <clears throat> that covered milk, because they thought their prices were going to be above that, the the Mendoza line there, and what had happened was everything was good to start with in the first couple of months, but then COVID hit, and well, we all know what happened when COVID hit. When COVID nineteen hit, it, it plummeted the prices, and so uh, we since then, if you were, uh, you know, fortunate enough to sign up for that program, you've got a couple of payments so far this year, and and the USDA at this point is is uh, Doled out of over 100 million dollars to dairy pro, uh, producers throughout this country, and, and because of largely of what the COVID has done for it. Uh, but just to back up just for a little bit, you know, 2018 Farm Bill authorized the dairy uh, coverage program, and many remember the, the MPP or the Margin Protection Program for dairy, and it was it was a USDA program as well, and it just didn't suit our producers, and so they tweaked it. Uh, back for the 2018 farm bill which actually tweaked it in 2017 and get it approved in 2018 um, and so this is a voluntary program uh, that will provide dairy operations the risk management coverage uh, that will pay producers when the difference, the margin, between the national price of milk and average cost of feed falls below a certain price level And that's uh, and that's kind of how that program is ran. It is you know it is voluntary program, and we would love to see more people in it, particularly this year you know, in years past uh, we probably need it, and they did sign up for it this year. We thought we was gonna uh, skirt on by above that number, but unfortunately we didn't we didn't because of the covid nineteen uh took control and and hammered
0: our producers pretty good. Uh, Sure, and uh, we certainly hope that word gets out. And Under these unprecedented circumstances our dairy producers are having to deal with, they will take advantage and sign up if they haven't already. Uh, When that uh, sign-up begins in October, I see where uh, the uh, Farm Service Agency Administrator, Mr. Richard Fordyce, was quoted as saying, uh, nobody would have imagined the significant impact that current unforeseen circumstances have had on an already fragile dairy market. It's during unprecedented times like these that the importance of offering agricultural producers support through the delivery of Farm Bill Safety Net programs such as the DMC becomes indisputably apparent. So it indicates that uh, he is very aware of the need to support our dairy farmers. As of uh, June 15th, uh, just a little over a week ago, uh, they reported that FSAs issued more than $100 million in program benefits to dairy producers. And and just talk about how that is so much needed because our dairy industry is still on the decline here in Arkansas, isn't it, Bruce?
5: Yes, unfortunately it is. You know, we've probably stabilized our loss over the last little bit. Uh, and we're working on some things outside of the, the dairy margin protection program. But, um, yeah, the, these programs that, that, the USDA puts forth that are run through the FSA offices are vitally important. At least they're an additional tool for our far- our farmers, our dairy producers, to if they cho- so choose uh, to participate in. I know that some of them have, and they're and they're going to receive a you know a check or two uh, for the drop in the milk prices. And I talked to a producer this morning, and he, he said, "Goodness gracious! If I'd have known this was going to happen, I'd have signed up in a heartbeat." He said, but you just never knew. And no one knew about the COVID-19, Not no no one in agriculture, not the dairy producers, but no one in agriculture in this country knew that COVID was going to have the impact that it has. And unfortunately, it has an impact, and it still has an impact. And so I, I truly believe that when October comes around and through the end of the year, uh, a lot of our producers will be taking a long, hard look about, particularly if you you did not participate in the 2020 program, you're going to take a long, hard look at the 2021 program to say, boy, you just never know. And it is a tool. It is an insurance program. It'll protect you on a large portion of your milk. And I just think that if people can analyze it and they have the money, and sometimes it, it's not a free program, obviously, mm-hmm. n- nor is any other insurance. So, but if you, you know, just for an example, if, if you produce, you um, a million pounds of milk a year and you wanted the highest coverage of 950 and then it cost you a, a 15 cents a hundred weight so it cost you about fifteen hundred dollars for that for that coverage and uh, and obviously if you got to the 950 you would get <clears throat> quite a bit more back than that but but you just never know uh, we all have insurance on our houses but we don't want our house to burn every year and so that's reason we have that protection so like I say it is a tool for our producers and uh, many throughout this country will be taking a long, hard look at this to, and to use it as that tool. Last year, they had over 13,000 producers sign up, and that's about that's you know uh, a little less than half. And we have about 27, 28,000 producers in this country. So we did have a program that uh, I'd say about 40% of the producers participated in. But I think I truly believe that in, for 2021, you're going to see that number go up.
0: Uh, you're going to have uh, your uh, dairy division summer meeting uh, next week, uh, at the end of this month, actually, uh, in just a few days, uh, up on Bill Hawks' farm in Benton County. Uh, as we anticipate our policy development, what are the uh, what's the one top one or two issues you anticipate our producers uh, bringing to the table at that meeting?
5: Well, there's there's probably two or three produ- uh, uh, issues that producers will bring forth. <laughs> One of them is the COVID. I mean, uh, some of them are going to get a paycheck, or they're all going to get a paycheck from the government once they turn some of their paperwork in about the devastating losses that they've had, and that that will be discussed, and and that's muchly appreciated, by the way, uh, through the you know president and our congressional body working so hard to get our producers money, but that's that's just a short term fix, but it uh, very much appreciated. So we're going to be talking about. Uh, the disaster money. We'll talk about what our producers are actually getting on a on a daily basis, on a weekly basis for their milk. Uh, we'll we'll discuss contracts and there'll be various things within those milk contracts, uh, regardless if it's uh, milk shipping in here. <clears throat> we also will talk about uh, how do we grow the dairy industry in the state of Arkansas. We've kind of slowed the death down, death rate of the, the dairy producers down, and uh, what we'd like to do now is grow it. Um, and we we understand times have changed. Um, the, the 25, 30-cow operations, the 50-cow operations, you know, we still have some of those. And we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to stay in business if that's what they so choose to do. But we also understand that the economies of scale has, has taken over, not just dairy but all of agriculture, uh, that sometimes if you're going to start a new operation, you need to be bigger bigger than what we're used to in the state of Arkansas. So we're exploring those avenues to bring people in to take a look at at what we have to offer, uh, land costs, electricity costs, water costs, and so on and so forth. And and obviously we have a market here. We have a plant uh, capacity here that we're right now bringing in most of our milk. And so we have that capability of uh, processing much more milk than what we're producing in the state of Arkansas. So those are just a few of those things we'll be discussing and trying to uh, figure out solutions for as we go through our policy development process.
0: Very good. Uh, As we wrap up this conversation, Bruce, I want to touch briefly on a late-breaking story, a news headline uh, that has been reported this week affecting our poultry industry here in Arkansas. we have a Tyson Foods processing plant up in Springdale, where uh, there has been a number of workers diagnosed with COVID-19. Uh, in response to that report, uh, China suspended poultry imports from Arkansas and, uh, and that particular plant, uh, and it says here stoking concerns over the broader implications for U.S. and global meat exports. Uh, your reaction to the fact that – and what does this mean uh, for our poultry growers here in Arkansas that uh, China is suspending imports right now? After we – you know, earlier in the year, before COVID broke out, in January, we were all celebrating the uh, agreement on the phase one of renewing relations with China uh, in trade. And now they're suspending poultry uh, imports. What does this mean?
5: Well, you're exactly right, uh, Ken. The chicken exports in the first quarter were up 8%. And that was due largely to what China, the agreement that China uh, signed on to about taking our, our poultry and beef was up 9%. To give you an example, that it's helped multiple uh, sectors of uh, agriculture. The first thing we need to understand is this is not a food safety issue. Um, it, it's a worker concern, a worker safety. And... Um, China would understand that, and I think they understand that. But um, for whatever reason, they decided that this is, this is a food safety issue, and it's, but it truly is not. And that's the first thing we need to make known to everybody, that uh, food safety is not a concern. And Tyson was uh, very proactive on, for the worker safety and the community uh, because of, of the COVID-19 and what it's been doing. And they tested uh, over 3,700 employees. And ninety five percent, four hundred eighty or so, were tested positive, and ninety five percent of those never showed any signs, so you would never know it. And uh, that that is a concern of the disease itself, but the the movement of the poultry is not a food safety issue. And and one other thing, the 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 chicken that is moved to to China is in a sub zero uh, container. Uh, it can't live in a sub zero situation, so. Uh, not only is it not doesn't transfer from humans to to the poultry itself it, it, there's a further uh, uh layer of defense when you put it in a sub zero situation so uh why is china <clears throat> excuse me why is china doing this uh you know some think it's political uh, they've china has also um stopped some um imports from Germany and they stopped the fish imports from Norway and uh, So some are some are saying that it's more political now What the impact may be on our producers is yet to be seen but what our concern is the same thing We've been fighting and discussing for the past couple months uh, We've had some longer out times in our producers, which cost them money We've had some producers have to go in and unfortunately do a whole house disposal and uh, when that happens, it costs the producers money. <clears throat> and so that's that's what we're keeping an eye on. That's one of the things we're really concerned about. It's protecting our producers as much as possible, and this is just another hit for our poultry producers uh, in this state um, that's going to affect their bottom line. And unfortunately, when you lose that last batch of the year, that that's your that's largely your profit for the year, and if you're not able to make that, we're really concerned about how many people are going to be able to stay in business for the 2021 year. And so um, we're, we're going to monitor this very closely. We're going to make sure that we can do everything we can. I know uh, we have uh, people in D.C. working with China trying to discuss this issue, we'll talk through it. Uh, but unfortunately, at this point, the ball's in China's court, and uh, they don't want the poultry. You know, if it stays just with Tyson and that plant would be one thing. But we all know uh, when that horse is out of the barn, uh, they can shut down not only multiple Mm -hmm. plants, but from the entire state of Arkansas and then from the country, if that's so so how they uh, deem to do this. So we're watching it very closely, and we're we're trying to protect our producers as much as we possibly can, and and, uh, we'll see what they do.
0: All right. Well, thanks uh, for explaining that for us, and we certainly hope uh, we all know how important export markets are for all of our commodities, and uh, we'll just hope that we can resume, you know, uh, exporting our poultry to China here uh, in the future. Bruce, thanks for a few minutes of your time today to explain these two issues, and uh, thank you for what you do uh, in your role here with Arkansas Farm Bureau, working with our dairy and poultry producers. Thank you so much, Mr. Kim. And speaking to Bruce Tincleve, Director of Commodity Activities and Regulatory Affairs on this edition of Arkansas AgCast.
1: Finally, Keith Sutton is joined by Dr. Jennifer Ballard with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Ballard explains how to prevent the spread of a deadly new virus strain capable of causing high mortality in both domestic and wild rabbit species in Arkansas. Welcome to
6: AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau and today I'm pleased to be talking with Dr. Jennifer Ballard who is a veterinarian for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Welcome to AgCast, Dr. Ballard. Well, thank you for having me. We've uh, got some important information we need to share today. And, uh, gosh, viruses have been in the news, and who would have thought? We've got a virus that is out there in parts of the U.S. that we're hoping to uh, contain to other parts of the U.S. We don't want it to come to Arkansas, and it affects rabbits, both domestic and wild what can you uh, tell folks about this virus, Dr. Ballard?
7: Well, it's called uh, rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, and it's uh, a virus that has occurred in other parts of the world for quite some time. We've known about it. Um, but it has it's changed over the last few years, in the last decade, uh, to where it can infect both. North American uh, wild rabbits and also domestic rabbits. Uh, Earlier strains really only affected domestic rabbits. So uh, we've got kind of a different situation happening now. And in the last two years, it's been introduced to a couple different places, and it's been contained uh, pretty effectively. But um, over the last few months, there's sort of a growing situation in the southwestern U.S. that we're really needing to keep an eye on. And certainly this is something we want to keep from uh, getting introduced to our state, if at all possible.
6: So uh, what does this virus do to rabbits? It's it's pretty deadly, isn't it?
7: It is. Um, it, it's not 100% fatal, but it, it is a pretty high mortality rate. It can make them very sick. Often the only sign is just, you know, a lot of rabbits dying at once. Uh, but sometimes you can see some other signs, some neurologic signs, uh, some blood around the nose and mouth and and some various things like that. So if you see any sick bunnies, you know, definitely something to report right now.
6: And does this this affect, we have two different types of wild rabbits in in Arkansas, uh, eastern cottontails and swamp rabbits. Does this affect both types of rabbits in the wild?
7: We would expect it to because they're pretty closely related, although I'm not sure that swamp rabbits have specifically been tested. We do know that it affects eastern cottontails, and it also affects jackrabbits and hare species that occur further west.
6: And uh, I guess one of the big things we want to talk about, it definitely infects domestic rabbits, so our goal in talking about this is to let people know about the virus if if you're somebody who, for instance, is raising rabbits in your backyard, uh, either as pets or for food, what do you need to know uh, that might help you avoid uh, causing any further problems with the virus?
7: Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's really important. Um, I think the, the key word here is biosecurity, you know, and those are the measures that we take to keep pathogens like this, um, viruses from being introduced into our population. So, you know, now's probably not a good time to add, you know, a lot of new rabbits to your rabbitry, Or, um, and, but if you are, you know, make sure they're coming from a, a source that you're really familiar with, that you have confidence in the quality of those animals. Um, you know, look look at the map of where this outbreak is occurring, which is mostly in the southwest, and, and it's on the USDA's website. It's updated regularly. Um, but especially avoid introducing rabbits to your collection that would come from that area. Make sure you have them checked out by a veterinarian before you bring them in. And it's, it's probably a, it's a really good idea to quarantine new rabbits, Uh, You don't have to do it very long. Just a week or two should be plenty because if these animals have this virus, you're going to know within a few days, uh, three to five days. So if you take just a little bit longer than that, keep a close eye on new animals. Don't mix them and don't, you know, don't share cages or, you know, a lot of food and hay and bedding because this is a virus that can survive for a while in the environment. So Um, you know take care of your rabbits and then if you have any in quarantine any new ones take care of those last and don't go back into your rabbit tree after you've handled them Uh, just taking on some of those basic biosecurity practices can really help protect your collection it's not in our wild rabbit populations now so um, you know by working together to protect both wild rabbits and domestic rabbits, uh, hopefully we can protect both resources in our state.
6: And a lot of people out there may not realize, particularly people who have rabbits for pets, you're you're really uh, it's not legal to import domestic rabbits into Arkansas unless they're headed for a, a USDA licensed slaughter facility. Is that correct?
7: Well, they can be imported, but just like other animals, they need to have a CVI, a certificate of veterinarian section. And and the same is true if you're bringing dogs or cats or any livestock across state lines. Um, you need to have it checked out by a veterinarian before you come across those state lines. Um, you can move rabbits to slaughter without a CVI. But anything you're importing to keep as a pet just needs to be checked out by a veterinarian first.
6: Well, that's just good sense rules, I think, uh, that we all want to follow. Uh, there's people out there who may be wondering, is is this virus, does it affect other pets at all? No. As
7: far as we know, it does not affect people. It does not affect other pets uh, or livestock. Um, this seems to be very specific to the lagomorph group or, or the group that contains rabbits and hares.
6: Well, we hope that everybody will do their best not to not to be doing things that might spread this around. If if they want to find uh, additional information, Doctor Ballard, you mentioned the USDA website, and y'all also have some information on the Game and Fish Commission's website. Is that correct?
7: We do. We have a, a brochure that we partnered with the Department of Agriculture to develop and so that brochure, it's a threefold brochure. It has uh, recommendations for both rabbit uh, raisers, rabbit breeders, um, and also, you know, outdoor enthusiasts, rabbit hunters uh, who, who may come into contact with these animals in this way. So. Um, It's a combined document that we work on, it's on our website, it's on the Department of Agriculture's website, uh, the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, and there's some links in there that can also take you to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and some additional sort of national resources.
6: Well, it sounds like this is something we need to be very vigilant about, uh, particularly as we get into uh, county fair season and state fair season, where a lot of folks Uh, usually show their rabbits, Uh, it's just really important, isn't it?
7: Absolutely. You know, the last thing we want is to have, you know, one sick bunny come into one of those show environments and and set off a chain of effects. So, you know, if you see any sick uh, domestic rabbits, contact the Department of Agriculture. If you see any sick wild rabbits, contact the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, and and we're working hand-in-hand to try to protect all of our resources.
6: Well, we appreciate you taking time to explain this uh, so everybody will know about the potential problem, and let's uh, hope we can keep it just potential. Uh, We we don't want this to happen, so everybody uh, be aware of this and uh, and please use precautions. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to join us.
7: My pleasure. Thank you me.
1: That's it for this week's Arkansas Adcast. Thanks for joining us. Check back next Thursday for more conversation and news about the state's largest industry.